Okay, so uh, hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's nice to be with you in Central and uh, to have opportunity to share with you today, talk a bit about the series you've been thinking about, and also be at the Lord's table with you, kind of family meal together. That's special to do. So thanks for the opportunity uh, and the invitation to do that. There are, it is estimated, 8.7 million species on Earth. But of those 8. million species on the planet, only one, only humans share one key characteristic of our maker, which is that we speak. We have developed language. We use words. And words are something truly remarkable. Malcolm Muggeridge, um, the well-known journalist of a previous generation, Um, in the first volume of his autobiography, talks about how significant words were for him in his life. He says, from the very beginning of my life, I never doubted that words were my métier. There was nothing else I ever wanted to do except use them. No other accomplishment or achievement I ever had the slightest regard or desire to emulate. I have always loved words and still love them for the wonderful things that can be done with them. Words are truly remarkable vehicles of thought and emotion and motivation. And Malcolm Muggeridge says that he loves them because of what you can do with them. What, what he says about words and what you can do with them is confirmed in the last moments of the film Darkest Star, if you've seen it. The movie charts Churchill's coming to power at the darkest star of the Second World War for Britain. The final scene of the movie takes place in the House of Commons and in it, Churchill makes the second of the three most famous speeches which he made during the war. And the last paragraph of his speech goes like this. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule, We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. As he finishes those words, the House of Commons is in uproar to support Churchill and the call to arms that he has just made. In the gallery above him is sitting Viscount Halifax, who was Churchill's inveterate opponent in pursuing the war with Germany. And as he sits there watching the scene in the Commons, as everyone cheers and shouts approval of the words that Churchill has just, moved, has just used, the person sitting beside him turns to Halifax and says, what just happened? 
And these are the last words of the film. Halifax replies, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. What you can do with words is incredible. Words are amazing things. And today we are dealing with the words of Jesus. The conclusion of what is probably the most famous sermon he ever preached. Words delivered on a Galilean hillside 2,000 years ago, reverberating down the ages and cultures of human history. Words spoken in Aramaic, written down in Greek, and now I'm about to read them to you in our language, the English language. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus' words. And in this final section of the sermon that you've been studying together, Jesus is talking about religious words, words of faith. And if you've been about church for any amount of time at all, you will have heard words of faith. And Jesus mentions three different kinds of words of faith in the passage, words of faith for which normally we should be thankful. For example, Jesus talks about inspired words. Throughout the history of God's relationship with our race, there were words of prophecy. Check for yourself in the scriptures, if you like, from the third chapter of the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, to the 22nd chapter, which is the very final chapter of the book of Revelation, you will find words of prophecy over and over again. The words of men or women breathed by the Spirit of God. Peter in his second letter says, prophecy never had its origins in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Words of prophecy 
are the words of God. They are inspired words. And when Paul comes along to encourage the young believers in Corinth to set the right priorities in the worship of God, this is what he says. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Why did he say that? Well, because God is still speaking. He hasn't stopped 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, whatever. He is still speaking today, and he was speaking in Jesus' day because Jesus talks about prophets. And he is still speaking now. A few Sundays ago in worship on the Carnmoney Road site at our 9.30 worship service at the end of the service, member of the congregation came up to me and said to me, John, I think God said something to me just before the service today, and you might think it's a bit odd. Maybe you wouldn't want to share it, but she said, I'll just give you what it is. I think it's for somebody who's here today. And the word that she gave me was walking in the morns. It's not the most spiritual kind of piece of, of, of uh, language I've ever heard, but she said, I, 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 so then I had a, should I actually mention this or not? It seemed a bit odd, walking in the morns. So I nearly forgot, but right at the very end of the service, I said, oh, by the way, I've just somebody here thinks that the Lord may have said to them, and it, this might be a message for someone here walking in the morns. In the service that morning was a man who is struggling with early onset dementia, who wasn't a Christian, whose wife must have been praying for him for over 20 years, I would imagine, if not longer. And he was in the service that morning, and when he heard the words He knew the words were for him. He came to the front of the service as soon as it was over, floods of tears, completely broken, gave his life to Jesus Christ. Previous day with a friend, he had been walking on the mountains of Morn, thinking about what was happening to him, wondering what on earth the future would hold for him. He heard that as the word of God to him because God is still speaking. There are still inspired words words, prophetic words that make us sit up and listen. But Jesus also mentions devout words. You know, being as we are creatures of words, when God speaks, we speak back. All human speech is learned by imitation. And if you don't believe that, okay, Dave and Joy's daughter, Elle, have you ever heard her speak? It's joy, absolutely 150% joy, the way she pronounces words, the emphasis in her speech, everything is her mum. Listen to her later on this afternoon and you'll see that that's the case. All human speech is learned by imitation. And we who hear God speak want to speak back. And Jesus talks here about people, ordinary people who call him Lord, Lord. They speak words of devotion. Now, words of devotion make huge claims for the person addressed. She may be the reason I survive, the why and wherefore I'm alive, the one I'll care for through the rough in many years. Me, I'll take her laughter and her tears and make them all my souvenirs. And where she goes, I've got to be. The meaning of my life is she. When we speak words of devotion, we say large things about the person to whom we are devoted. And in this passage, the people who talk to God, who speak to Jesus, say, Lord, that is the term with which the Roman world addressed Caesar. 
That is the Greek term with which Jewish people referred to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament. And they used this term to say big things about the person to whom they are speaking. These are words of devotion. And those who use those words live their lives for that name. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Devout words. Help us to understand what others think about Jesus. Those of you who have been coming here regularly will have got to know Clarkie sitting over there. He's one of our elders, was one of our elders up on the Carnmoney Road site, now involved with you guys down here. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting with Clarkie or ever been with him at any time when he's praying, but I can pretty much guarantee that at some point of the prayer that he prays, he will say these words. He will say, Father, thank you for Jesus. Words of devotion. Lord, Lord. We be thankful for words of devotion, for devout words, because they give us an estimate of what other people think about Jesus. And so... There are inspired words, the words of prophecy, devout words, the words of worship. There are beautiful words. The words of Jesus himself are special. Over the past few months, you've been living with these words. They are mesmeric. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I could go on for the rest of the time we have. Beautiful words unsurpassed, remarkable speech. On one occasion, when the temple rulers sent the guards, these were hardened men. They sent the guards to arrest Jesus, and they couldn't do it. And when they returned to the temple rulers to explain themselves, they looked at them and said, well, what is wrong with you? He's one guy. Why couldn't you arrest him? Why couldn't you bring him here? Do you know what they said? They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The words of Jesus, beautiful words. You can't arrest somebody who talks like that. And the thing about beautiful words is the beautiful words make us open to hear more. Because the words of Jesus are such incredible, almost unique human communication, when we start to listen, we want to hear more. 
we don't necessarily understand it all. My dad used to tell a story about uh, a man who attended, a fairly ordinary man who had no particular education and used to attend this church where somebody who was a theological professor preached and his friend was always wondering, you know, why on earth did he go there? I mean, did he even understand a single word that he heard during the service? And he said to him one day, look, he said, you know, why do you go to that church? Do you ever under, do you understand that guy? No, he said, I don't. Well, he said, why do you go? Oh, he said, the sound of it can pass your ears is powerful. Because <laughs> there's something about well-used words. You don't always understand them. You can't always make sense of them, but it draws you in. And the words of Jesus are like that. They are beautiful, powerful words. Words. Words are incredible. Jesus tells us about three kind of words of faith that, that, that we take for granted. They're part of what it means to be part of church. And you know, the rabbis mostly taught that hearing the words of God was the most important thing. Because they would have said, after all, if you don't hear the words of God, if you don't hear the law, you can't obey it. Therefore, which is more important, to obey or to hear? Well, the answer to the question is to hear, because if you don't hear, you can't obey. And so they would have argued that just hearing the words of God was the most important thing. Jesus, however, in the conclusion to the sermon that you've been studying over these weeks, Jesus seems to say that however special words may seem to be, inspired words, devout words, beautiful words, however special those words may seem to be, it is outcomes that matter more. Not just words, but the outcomes of those words. And that's true in each of the kind of words we just talked about. Think about prophecy. Outcomes matter, not not just what is said, because there are true prophets and there are false prophets, and how do you know the difference? Because the temptation is about any kind of religious speech, about any kind of faith words, what we tend to do is we have a tendency to listen to the prophets who say the things that we want to hear. It's a natural human thing. Like in the Old Testament, there was Jeremiah, and then there was all the others. There was one prophet who actually brought the word of God, and all the others were just teaching stuff that they thought up themselves. And of all those others, this vast majority of this huge number of prophets in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, the Lord says this about them, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. But this was what people wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear what Jeremiah was talking about. So they listened to the others. And listening to the others was deadly because Jesus said a false prophet is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so he said the only way you can really tell whether the words you're listening to are the words that God is speaking to you or not, and the only way you can do that is by outcomes, by their fruit, Jesus says, you will recognize them. I find that a really helpful metaphor because if you were to say to me, okay, that there was a tree in your garden and if you were to ask me, what kind of fruit tree is that tree, all right? The only way I would know what kind of fruit tree that was was when it was in season and there was fruit on it because if I looked at the tree, as far as I'm concerned, it could be any kind of tree. My gardening skills and knowledge are less than zero, all right? And so if you showed me a tree, I wouldn't have a clue 
whether it was a fruit tree or not a fruit tree, and if it was a fruit tree, what kind of fruit tree it was. But if you showed me the tree when there was apples on it, that would give me a pretty good clue. And that's what Jesus is saying. We don't know about these prophets. We don't know everything about the mind and will of God. So how, therefore, do we have any clue of any description whether what people are saying to us comes from God? Jesus said, the only way you know is by the fruit. What is the outcome of the prophet's life? Does the life of the person speaking to you look like anything what he or she is saying? By their fruit. What's their life look like? What does their influence look like? Where have they been? And, and what have they left behind them when they left? Those are the things that let you know whether or not what is being said is genuinely the word of God. Outcomes, outcomes are more important than the words. That's also true, not only of prophecy, but also of testimony, of those words of devotion that we talked about. See, Jesus could hardly be clear. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the words of devotion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These people had words of devotion for God. In fact, they had more than words because Jesus said that they even had miracles to back up the words. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, if these people could heal the sick and they could raise the dead and, and they could cleanse the lepers and do all these other things, well, does that not actually indicate that their words must be true? That they genuinely know the Jesus that they're talking about? Well, once again, Jesus said, no, you cannot take that as the ultimate sign. Once again, outcomes are what you're looking for here. Do these people really know Jesus? And how would you know if they did? They might have all the right words, but do they really know the person that they're talking about and in whose name they're doing all these incredible things? Elsewhere, Jesus puts it like this. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus said, Philip, if you really knew me, when you look at me, do you know who you'd see? You'd see my dad. When you listen to me, do you know who you'd hear? You'd hear the intonations of the speech of my dad. When you see me do stuff, you wouldn't see me do that stuff. You'd see my dad. Because if you really knew me, then he's the one you'd see living and moving and working in me. It's one of the things that if you really know somebody, then you get to see aspects about them that come from their family inheritance. I was sitting with my wife yesterday afternoon, and my son is now about to have a paroxysm of despair. I was sitting with my wife in the cozy chair. And we were having a cup of coffee together yesterday afternoon, okay? And we were enjoying the cup of coffee, and we're sitting chatting and talking. And Christine goes silent for a while, and she's looking at me while I talk. And I think, uh, what's wrong, you know? I've forgotten to comb my hair or something. And she says to me, she said to me, she said, I'm looking at you, and I'm listening to you, and I'm seeing and hearing your dad. And she said, nowadays, I seem to see and hear that more and more than I ever had before. 
Now, my dad's dead now quite a considerable period of time. And yet the reality is that as my wife, who knows me perhaps better than anyone else in all the world, looks at me, she sees not just me, but she sees in me what has been placed in me by the heritage I bear and the lineage I carry. And Jesus said to Philip, if you really knew me, like if you really knew me, then when you hear me speak, you'd hear my father. And when you see me work, you'd see my father because that's who I am. What is the outcome of the believer's testimony? What's the outcome that we're looking for here? The outcomes of words of devotion are that we know Jesus himself, that we get connected not only with him, but with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, the Father who fathered him and the Spirit that is the Spirit of Christ that moves, breathes, and works among us when we worship. When we see Jesus, when, when someone comes to you with words of devotion, what are you looking for? You're looking to see if there's anything about them that gives you an indication that they know Jesus and they know his Father and they know his Spirit. Outcomes. Outcomes of the words of devotion and outcomes of the words of prophecy and finally, outcomes of the teaching. See, when it comes to the beautiful words of Christ, aesthetic appreciation will not be enough. Of course, there's something unique about the words of Christ. If Jesus is who Jesus said he was, wouldn't you expect his words to be remarkable? He might have been brought up in relative poverty. He might have worked with his hands as a carpenter for most of his adult life before he exercised a public ministry. But because of who he was and who lived and breathed in him, wouldn't you expect him to speak practically uniquely in all the history of humankind? Of course you would. And there is a huge aesthetic appreciation of the words of Christ. They are remarkable. Loads of people who are not Christians, who despise the church and everything to do with it, still retain remarkable admiration for Jesus because of who he is and what he says. But Jesus says that once again, the key things about his words are not so much the words as the outcomes of those words And to to understand what the outcomes of the words of Jesus should be, you have to understand that the words of Jesus are not like the lines of a song which generate an emotional response in us. And sometimes we don't even know why. For me, this wouldn't be for you, I get. For me, words of people like Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, Mark Cohn, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen. There's a line in Bruce Springsteen's song, Uh, Streets of Philadelphia, in which he says, talking about the decline in the life of the person who's the victim of age about AIDS about whom he's seeking, I walked a thousand miles just to slip this skin. I don't know what it is about the line of that song, but every time I listen to that song, something about that line resonates with me. What an incredible way to say what he's trying to say and to produce the emotional reaction he's trying to produce. I walked a thousand miles just to slip the skin. I don't know why it works. It just works. But Jesus' words don't work like that. They're not like the lines of a song that, have, that create that impression on us. Jesus' words are more like the words of a policeman to me one day in the diamond in Derry. I was at school. I was on my way home. The troubles 
were beginning to be in full swing and there was no point in heading straight home from school every day because there was a riot or a bomb explosion or something much more interesting than going home to do homework. So rather than heading home most days, we headed up the town and I was standing one day at the Diamond, which if you know Derry, you'll know is kind of in the centre of the walled city and I'm standing in there and a policeman comes over to us and says, there's a bomb in that car parked over there, would you guys move back? We were really reluctant to move back because we never actually seen a bomb go off before and we really wanted to see it. He said, no, no, you need to move back. We don't know what size. Could be really dangerous move back. So we moved back, stood for 10 minutes, and about 10 minutes later, the bomb went off. Okay, so we got to see it and got to hear it. The bomb that went off shattered the car into pieces and the front chassis of the car landed on the exact spot that we had been standing 10 minutes earlier. And if we hadn't heeded the words of the policeman that day, I wouldn't be standing here today talking to you about the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are less like Bruce Springsteen's words in his songs and more like the words of that policeman to me in the diamond that afternoon after school. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What kind of words are these? These are words of warning and exhortation. These are words which are calling us to live a different kind of life. John Stott, in his commentary, puts it like this. Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience, and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. It's not about the words However wonderful the words are, and the words are wonderful, but it's about the outcomes. The only safe course when you hear the words of Jesus is to respond to who Jesus is. I was at a conference last Friday, uh, Friday week ago, and uh, one of the people who was leading the conference was somebody I had taught at Bible College a long time ago, who now works for this particular organization, and who was leading one of the seminars. And I decided to go along to the seminar so we could switch roles for once, so I could have to be his student rather than the other way around. So I went into the seminar room and sat down along with a number of other people around about my age. And, and he then proceeded to make me feel like about 20 years older than I am because when he was introducing himself to everyone in the room, and he said, that man sitting over there taught me church history at Bible College X years ago, I'll not tell you exactly how many it was. And uh, so that was pretty disappointing, okay, because it established the fact that I was not only looking the eyes of age, but genuinely am the eyes of age. But then he went on to say one of the nicest things any of my students has ever said. No, he said, actually, that's not true. He didn't so much teach me church history as live it himself. And This is what Jesus is saying. The words of Jesus are important. They are important because they are not just beautiful words, incredible words. They are lived words. Jesus is telling us who he is, and he is inviting us and calling us to have a reaction to who he is. See, Jesus has a blood-red line. We hear a lot about those kind of lines in Northern Ireland these days. 
But Jesus Christ has a blood red line. And in a moment or two, we're going to gather around a table. And on the table, there's going to be bread and there's going to be wine. And at that table, you can see Jesus' blood red line. Jesus invites every person on the face of the earth to cross that line. And it is the unique challenge of his life. It's what his whole life is about. It's what his words are about. It's all about outcomes. And the outcomes are that blood red line. And in the table that we're going to share in a moment or two, that's what we are in reality dealing with. We're coming back to the central challenge of Jesus' ministry that he comes to right at the end of the sermon that you've been talking about here. These incredible, unforgettable words that he uses, his picture of the two men with their houses and the different outcomes of their lives as a result of what reaction they take to the words of Jesus. We're talking about the blood red line. And when we come to this table in a moment or two, a number of things happen. The first thing that happens is remembrance. We remember that the Son of God, the only Son of God, lived and died in your place and mine so that all that is disreputable and unworthy and shameful about my life can be dealt with and that I can be free. And I remember that that happened on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem just about 2,000 years ago when the most beautiful person who ever lived took my place. I remember And then because I remember, I give thanks. Sometimes the sacrament is called the Eucharist. Eucharistes is the Greek word for thanksgiving. And when we refer to this meal as Eucharist, we are referring to the fact that when we take bread and wine, we do it with thanksgiving because we're not just remembering that God did something incredible in Jesus. We're taking another step down the road and saying thank you for what you did. And then the third thing that's happening is we are into participation. You can't eat a meal unless you take part. You sit at the table with your arms folded and your legs crossed, but unless you actually lift the bread and drink the wine, you're not involved in the meal. You're only involved in the conversation around it. You get no benefit from what's on the table. A meal demands participation. You've got to take the bread. You've got to take the wine. Yeah, of course you're not worthy to do it. No one is worthy to do it. No one can ever live up to this incredible thing that we are about to recognize. But that's the deal. It's how meals work. You either eat and drink or you don't get to be part of the meal. And then we make a commitment. The wine is blood red. And the line we cross is blood red. It is a moment of commitment to say, I want not just the words, but the outcome of those words. I want to place myself in a situation, in a relationship to Christ, which means that from this moment on, all that I am and all that I do and all that I have are his. I make an act of commitment. You can be anybody. You do not have to have any necessary preparation. You could have come in here today and the absolute last thought in your mind was that you were going to take part in communion and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. 
and acknowledge yourself as a follower of his. That might have been the last thing on your mind, but the reality is that the conclusion of Jesus' sermon is this. There's a blood-red line, and you either cross it or you don't cross it. And if you don't cross it, you're not mine. And today that line is among us in a glass of wine and a loaf of bread.